0: Section 12 of The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals by Charles Darwin. Chapter 6 Special Expressions of Man. Suffering and Weeping, Part 2 Cause of the Secretion of Tears It is an important fact which must be considered in any theory of the secretion of tears from the mind being affected that whenever the muscles around the eyes are strongly and involuntarily contracted in order to compress the blood vessels and thus to protect the eyes, tears are secreted often in sufficient abundance to roll down the cheeks. This occurs under the most opposite emotions, and under no emotion at all. The sole exception, and this is only a partial one, to the existence of a relation between the involuntary and strong contraction of these muscles and the secretion of tears, is that of young infants who whilst screaming violently with their eyelids firmly closed, do not commonly weep until they have attained the age of from two to three or four months. Their eyes, however, become suffused with tears at a much earlier age. It would appear, as already remarked, that the lacrimal glands do not, from the want of practice or some other cause, come to full functional activity at a very early period of life. With children at a somewhat later age, crying out or wailing from any distress is so regularly accompanied by the shedding of tears that weeping and crying are synonymous terms. Under the opposite emotion of great joy or amusement, as long as laughter is moderate, there is hardly any contraction of the muscles round the eyes so that there is no frowning. But when peals of loud laughter are uttered, with the rapid and violent spasmodic expirations, tears stream down the face. I have more than once noticed the face of a person, after a paroxysm of violent laughter, and I could see that the orbicular muscles and those running to the upper lip were still partially contracted, which together with the tear-stained cheeks gave to the upper half of the face an expression not to be distinguished from that of a child still blubbering from grief. The fact of tears streaming down the face during violent laughter is common to all the races of mankind, as we shall see in a future chapter. In violent coughing, especially when a person is half-choked, the face becomes purple, the veins distended the orbicular muscles strongly contracted, and tears run down the cheeks. Even after a fit of ordinary coughing, almost everyone has to wipe his eyes. In violent vomiting or retching, as I have myself experienced and seen in others, the orbicular muscles are strongly contracted, and tears sometimes flow freely down the cheeks. It has been suggested to me that this may be due to irritating matter being injected into the nostrils and causing by reflex action the secretion of tears. Accordingly, I asked one of my informants, a surgeon, to attend to the effects of retching when nothing was thrown up from the stomach, and by an odd coincidence, he himself suffered the next morning from an attack of retching, and three days subsequently observed a lady under a similar attack, and he is certain that in neither case an atom of matter was ejected from the stomach, yet the orbicular muscles were strongly contracted, and tears freely secreted. I can also speak positively to the energetic contraction of these same muscles round the eyes, and to the coincident free secretion of tears when the abdominal muscles act with unusual force in a downward direction on the intestinal canal. Yawning commences with a deep inspiration, followed by a long and forcible expiration, and at the same time, almost all the muscles of the body are strongly contracted, including those round the eyes. During this act, tears are often secreted, and I have seen them even rolling down the cheeks. I have frequently observed that when persons scratch some point which itches intolerably, they forcibly close their eyelids. But they do not, as I believe, first draw a deep breath, and then expel it with force. And I have never noticed that the eyes then become filled with tears. But I am not prepared to assert that this does not occur. The forcible closure of the eyelids is, perhaps, merely a part of that general action by which almost all the muscles of the body are at the same time rendered rigid. It is quite different from the gentle closure of the eyes which often accompanies, as Gradiolay remarks, the smelling a delicious odor, or the tasting a delicious morsel and which probably originates in the desire to shut out any disturbing impressions through the eyes. Professor Donders writes to me to the following effect, quote, I have observed some cases of a very curious affection when, after a slight rub, a tushiman. for example, from the friction of a coat, which caused neither a wound nor a contusion, spasms of the orbicular muscles occurred with a very profuse flow of tears lasting about 1 hour subsequently sometimes after an interval of several weeks violent spasms of the same muscles reoccurred accompanied by the secretion of tears together with primary or secondary redness of the eye End quote. "Mr Bowman informs me that he has occasionally observed Closely analogous cases, and that, in some of these, there was no redness or inflammation of the eyes. I was anxious to ascertain whether there existed in any of the lower animals a similar relation between the contraction of the orbicular muscles during violent expiration and the secretion of tears, but there are very few animals which contract these muscles in a prolonged manner or which shed tears. The Macacus maurus, which formerly wept so copiously in the zoological gardens, would have been a fine case for observation, but the two monkeys now there, and which are believed to belong to the same species, do not weep. Nevertheless, they were carefully observed by Mr. Bartlett and myself, whilst screaming loudly and they seemed to contract these muscles. But they moved about their cages so rapidly that it was difficult to observe with certainty. No other monkey, as far as I have been able to ascertain, contracts its orbicular muscles whilst screaming. The Indian elephant is known sometimes to weep. Sir E. Tennant, in describing these which he saw captured and bound in Ceylon, says, some quote, lay motionless on the ground with no other indication of suffering than the tears which suffused their eyes and flowed incessantly. End quote. Speaking of another elephant, he says, quote, When overpowered and made fast, his grief was most affecting. His violence sank to utter prostration, and he lay on the ground uttering choking cries. With tears trickling down his cheeks. End quote. In the zoological gardens, the keeper of the Indian elephants positively asserts that he has several times seen tears rolling down the face of the old female when distressed by the removal of the young one. Hence, I was extremely anxious to ascertain, as an extension of the relation between the contraction. Of the orbicular muscles and the shedding of tears in man whether elephants when screaming or trumpeting loudly contract these muscles at mr bartlett's desire the keeper ordered the old and the young elephant to trumpet and we repeatedly saw in both animals that just as the trumpeting began the orbicular muscles especially in the lower ones were distinctly contracted on a subsequent occasion, the keeper made the old elephant trumpet much more loudly, and invariably both the upper and lower orbicular muscles were strongly contracted, and now in an equal degree. It is a singular fact that the African elephant, which, however, is so different from the Indian species that it is placed by some naturalists in a distinct subgenus, when made on two occasions to trumpet loudly, exhibited no trace of the contraction of the orbicular muscles. From the several foregoing cases with respect to man, there can, I think, be no doubt that the contraction of the muscles round the eyes during violent expiration or when the expanded chest is forcibly compressed is, in some manner, intimately connected. With the secretion of tears this holds good under widely different emotions and independently of any emotion it is not of course meant that tears cannot be secreted without the contractions of these muscles for it is notorious that they are often freely shed with the eyelids not closed and with the brows unwrinkled the contraction must be both involuntary and prolonged as during a choking fit or energetic as during a sneeze the mere involuntary winking of the eyelids though often repeated does not bring tears into the eyes nor does the voluntary and prolonged contraction of the several surrounding muscles suffice as the lacrimal glands of children are easily excited I persuaded my own and several other children of different ages to contract these muscles repeatedly with their utmost force, and to continue doing so as long as they possibly could, but this produced hardly any effect. There was sometimes a little moisture in the eyes, but not more than apparently could be accounted for by the squeezing out of the already secreted tears within the glands. The nature of the relation between the involuntary and energetic contraction of the muscles round the eyes, and the secretion of tears, cannot be positively ascertained, but a probable view may be suggested. The primary function of the secretion of tears, together with some mucus, is to lubricate the surface of the eye, and the secondary one, as some believe, is to keep the nostrils damp so that the inhaled air may be moist, and likewise, to favour the power of smelling. But another, and at least equally important function of tears, is to wash out particles of dust, or other minute objects which may get into the eyes. That this is of great importance is clear from the cases in which the cornea has been rendered opaque through inflammation caused by particles of dust not being removed, in consequence of the eye and eyelid becoming immovable. The secretion of tears from the irritation of any foreign body in the eye is a reflex action. That is, the body irritates a peripheral nerve, which sends an impression to certain sensory nerve cells. These transmit an influence to other cells and these again to the lacrimal glands. The influence transmitted to these glands causes, as there is good reason to believe, the relaxation of the muscular coats of the smaller arteries. This allows more blood to permeate the glandular tissue, and this induces a free secretion of tears. When the small arteries of the face including those of the retina, are relaxed under very different circumstances, namely, during an intense blush, the lacrimal glands are sometimes affected in a like manner, for the eyes become suffused with tears. It is difficult to conjecture how many reflex actions have originated, but, in relation to the present case of the affection of the lacrimal glands through irritation of the surface of the eye, it may be worth remarking that, as soon as some primordial form became semi-terrestrial in its habits, and was liable to get particles of dust into its eyes, if these were not washed out, they would cause much irritation, and on the principle of the radiation of nerve force to adjoining nerve cells, the lacrimal glands would be stimulated to secretion. As this would often recur, and as nerve force readily passes along accustomed channels, a slight irritation would ultimately suffice to cause a free secretion of tears. As soon as by this, or by some other means, a reflex action of this nature had been established and rendered easy, other stimulants applied to the surface of the eye, such as a cold wind, slow inflammatory action, or a blow on the eyelids, would cause a copious secretion of tears, as we know to be the case. The glands are also excited into action through the irritation of adjoining parts. Thus, when the nostrils are irritated by pungent vapors, though the eyelids may be kept firmly closed, tears are copiously secreted, and this likewise follows from a blow on the nose for instance, from a boxing glove. A stinging switch on the face produces, as I have seen, the same effect. In these latter cases, the secretion of tears is an incidental result and of no direct service. As all these parts of the face, including the lacrimal glands, are supplied with branches of the same nerve, namely the fifth, it is in some degree intelligible that the effects of the excitement of any one branch should spread to the nerve cells or roots of the other branches. The internal parts of the eye likewise act, under certain conditions, in the reflex banner on the lacrimal glands. The following statements have been kindly communicated to me by Mr. Bowman, but the subject is a very intricate one as all the parts of the eye are so intimately related together and are so sensitive to various stimulants. A strong light acting on the retina, when in a normal condition, has very little tendency to cause lacrimation. But with unhealthy children having small, old-standing ulcers on the cornea, the retina becomes excessively sensitive to light and exposure even to common daylight causes forcible and sustained closure of the eyelids, and a profuse flow of tears. When persons who ought to begin the use of convex glasses habitually strain the waning power of accommodation, an undue secretion of tears very often follows, and the retina is liable to become unduly sensitive to light. In general, morbid affections of the surface of the eye and of the ciliary structures concerned in the accommodative act are prone to be accompanied with excessive secretion of tears hardness of the eyeball not rising to inflammation but implying a want of balance between the fluids poured out and again taken up by the intraocular vessels is not usually attended with any lacrimation when the balance is on the other side and the eye becomes too soft there is a great tendency to lacrimation finally there are numerous morbid states and structural alterations of the eyes and even terrible inflammations which may be attended with little or no secretion of tears it also deserves notice as indirectly bearing on our subject that the eye and adjoining parts are subject to an extraordinary number of reflex and associated movements, sensations, and actions, besides those relating to the lacrimal glands. When a bright light strikes the retina of one eye alone, the iris contracts, but the iris of the other eye moves after a measurable interval of time. The iris likewise moves in accommodation to near or distant vision, and when the two eyes are made to converge. Everyone knows how irresistibly the eyebrows are drawn down under an intensely bright light. The eyelids also involuntarily wink when an object is moved near the eyes, or a sound is suddenly heard. A well-known case of a bright light causing some person to sneeze is even more curious. The nerve force here radiates from certain nerve cells in connection with the retina to the sensory nerve cells of the nose, causing it to tickle, and from these to the cells which command the various respiratory muscles, the orbiculars included, which expel the air in so peculiar a manner that it rushes through the nostrils alone. To return to our point, why are tears secreted during a screaming fit or other violent expiratory efforts? As a slight blow on the eyelids causes a copious secretion of tears, it is at least possible that the spasmodic contraction of the eyelids by strongly pressing on the eyeball should in a similar manner cause some secretion. This seems possible although the voluntary contraction of the same muscles does not produce any such effect. We know that a man cannot voluntarily sneeze or cough with nearly the same force as he does automatically, and so it is with the contraction of the orbicular muscles. Sir C. Bell experimented on them, and found that, by suddenly and forcibly closing the eyelids in the dark, sparks of light are seen, like those caused by tapping the eyelids with the fingers. Quote, but in sneezing, the compression is both more rapid and more forcible, and the sparks are more brilliant. End quote. That these sparks are due to the contractions of the eyelids is clear, because if they, quote, are held open during the act of sneezing, no sensation of light will be experienced. End quote. In the peculiar cases referred to by Professor Donders and Mr. Bowman, we have seen that some weeks after the eye has been very slightly injured, spasmodic contractions of the eyelids ensue, and these are accompanied by a profuse flow of tears. In the act of yawning, the tears are apparently due solely to the spasmodic contraction of the muscles round the eyes. Notwithstanding these latter cases, it seems hardly credible that the pressure of the eyelids on the surface of the eye, although affected spasmodically and therefore with much greater force than can be done voluntarily, should be sufficient to cause by reflex action the secretion of tears in the many cases in which this occurs during violent expiratory efforts. Another cause may come conjointly into play. We have seen that the internal parts of the eye, under certain conditions, act in a reflex manner on the lacrimal glands. We know that during violent expiratory efforts, the pressure of the arterial blood within the vessels of the eye is increased, and that the return of the venous blood is impeded. It seems, therefore, not improbable that the distension of the ocular vessels, thus induced, might act by reflection on the lacrimal glands, the effects due to the spasmodic pressure of the eyelids on the surface of the eye being thus increased. In considering how far this view is probable, we should bear in mind that the eyes of infants have been acted on in this double manner during numberless generations, whenever they have screamed, and on the principle of nerve force readily passing along accustomed channels. Even a moderate compression of the eyeballs and a moderate distension of the ocular vessels would ultimately come, through habit, to act on the glands. We have an analogous case in the orbicular muscles being almost always contracted in some slight degree, even during a gentle crying fit. When there can be no distension of the vessels and no uncomfortable sensation excited within the eyes. Moreover, when complex actions or movements have long been performed in strict association together, and these are from any cause at first voluntarily and afterwards habitually checked, then if the proper exciting conditions occur, any part of the action or movement which is least under the control of the will, will often be still involuntarily performed. The secretion by a gland is remarkably free from the influence of the will. Therefore, when with the advancing age of the individual, or with the advancing culture of the race, the habit of crying out or screaming is restrained, and there is consequently no distension of the blood vessels of the eye, it may nevertheless well happen that tears should still be secreted. We may see, as lately remarked, the muscles round the eyes of a person who reads a pathetic story, twitching or trembling in so slight a degree as hardly to be detected. In this case, there has been no screaming and no distension of the blood vessels. Yet through habit certain nerve cells send a small amount of nerve force to the cells commanding the muscles round the eyes and they likewise send some to the cells commanding the lacrimal glands for the eyes often become at the same time just moistened with tears if the twitching of the muscles round the eyes and the secretion of tears had been completely prevented nevertheless it is almost certain that there would have been some tendency to transmit nerve force in these same directions. And as the lacrimal glands are remarkably free from the control of the will, they would be eminently liable still to act, thus betraying, though there were no other outward signs, the pathetic thoughts which were passing through the person's mind. As a further illustration of the view here advanced, I may remark that, during an earlier period of life, when habits of all kinds are readily established, our infants, when pleased, have been accustomed to other loud pills of laughter, during which the vessels of their eyes are distended, as often and as continuously as they have yielded when distressed to screaming fits, then it is probable that in afterlife tears would have been as copiously and as regularly secreted under the one state of mind as under the other. Gentle laughter or a smile, or even a pleasing thought, would have sufficed to cause a moderate secretion of tears. There does indeed exist an evident tendency in this direction, as will be seen in a future chapter, when we treat of the tender feelings. With the sandwich islanders, according to Freycinet, tears are actually recognized as a sign of happiness but we should require better evidence on this head than that of a passing voyager. So again, if our infants, during many generations, and each of them during several years, had almost daily suffered from prolonged choking fits, during which the vessels of the eyes are distended and tears copiously secreted, then it is probable, such is the force of associated habit, that during after life the mere thought of a choke, without any distress of mind, would have sufficed to bring tears into our eyes. To sum up this chapter, weeping is probably the result of some such chain of events as follows. Children, when wanting food or suffering in any way, cry out loudly, like the young of most other animals, partly as a call to their parents for aid and partly from any great exertion serving relief prolonged screaming inevitably leads to the gorging of the blood vessels of the eye and this will have led at first consciously and at last habitually to the contraction of the muscles round the eye in order to protect them at the same time the spasmodic pressure on the surface of the eye and the distension of the vessels within the eye without necessarily entailing any conscious sensation, will have affected, through reflex action, the lacrimal glands. Finally, through the three principles of nerve force readily passing along accustomed channels, of association which is so widely extended in its power, and of certain actions being more under the control of the will than others, it has come to pass that suffering readily causes the secretion of tears without being necessarily accompanied by any other action although in accordance with this view we must look at weeping as an incidental result as purposeless as the secretion of tears from a blow outside the eye or as a sneeze from the retina being affected by a bright light yet this does not present any difficulty in our understanding how the secretion of tears serves as a relief to suffering. And by as much as the weeping is more violent or hysterical, by so much will the relief be greater. On the same principle that the writhing of the whole body, the grinding of the teeth, and the uttering of piercing shrieks, all give relief under an agony of pain. End of section 12